Amen. You may be seated. And if you have a Bible, you can open up to Galatians chapter number three. We will be there in just a couple minutes. First, announcements. If you're new or visiting as a guest, welcome. My name is John, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you'd like to get to know more about us, as Anthony says, we'd like to get to know more about you. So either online, front page, unionaz.org, there's a connect card you can fill out and we can get in touch, or the old-fashioned way, we have connect cards at the back table. Just put your name, email on there, and we would love to get coffee, lunch, uh, get to know your story and see how your story might integrate into the life of Union Church. Uh, this coming Wednesday, which is June 7th at 6, we are going to have a prayer meeting uh, in the activity room, so just across the hallway, 6 to 7 p.m. It's our quarterly prayer meeting. We invite you to come and join us just for an hour of being together, praying, uh, seeking God's heart for our church and city. Then we move on. Um, it was voted on two weeks ago uh, for Mike Gaston to become an elder, and so today is a bit of an important day in the life of the church as we are formally and finally appointing him to the office. The process was um, seeing him, talking to him, getting to know him over the better part of more than two years now. Um, he came into the elder process about a year ago, uh, met with the elders, filled out a questionnaire. We get to know him, get to know Murph, um, and then went through a process of about six months of uh, being alongside for the meetings and then the elders voted to approve him into the office of elder um, and then the members voted and approved unanimously two weeks ago. Uh, I want to read to you from 1 Timothy on the qualifications of elder and then we're going to have Mike go through some questions, a kind of a commissioning and then we're going to ask the congregation questions and then Anthony is going to pray for us and all of that together. Here's what Paul writes to Timothy, and this is what we have in mind when it comes to elders and leaders in the life of the church. It says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of a devil. Of the devil. And so... As you know, it's quite a list. Uh, Jesus is the perfect elder, the perfect shepherd, uh, but that's the bar that is set for shepherds and overseers in God's church. So Mike, by God's grace and help, yes, probably a microphone. You could just yell really loudly. That's true. By God's grace and help, do you commit to follow Jesus above all else, cling to his word, participate in prayer, and keep the gospel central and continue to grow in grace? I do. Do you commit to follow Jesus above all else? There it is. Uh, cling to, uh, I already said that one. <laughs> Love and serve your family, your church, your city with the compassions, compassion, patience, and humility of our Lord. I do. Do you commit to depend on the Holy Spirit for guidance and direction for yourself, your family, and your church? I do. Do you commit to pursue reconciliation with Scripture as our guide where there is conflict, disagreement, or misunderstanding? I do. 
Model Christ-like leadership in all of your dealings. I do. Live free from immorality and do you uh, all you can to avoid the appearance of evil in any situation that might dishonor in the name of Christ. I do. Commit to humbly confess, repent, and pursue reconciliation when you sin and fail. I do. You commit to uphold and support the confession of faith for Union Church. I do. So here's your commission out of 1 Peter chapter 5, where he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's good news. Now, church, I'm going to ask you some questions, one, two, three of them. If you agree, then you say, we do. Church, do you commit to support your leaders as we follow Jesus? We do. Do you commit to uphold us in prayer and follow your elders to the degree we are honoring Christ and his word? We do. Do you commit to pursue reconciliation with scripture as our guide when there is conflict, disagreement, or misunderstanding? Now, a commission for us all from the letter of Jude. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Did you want to share the prayer before Anthony comes up? Yeah, I asked John for a moment to just say uh, uh, how much I appreciate being invited by this team of leaders to be among them. It's humbling and also affirming. I'm glad to join them. I appreciate the affirmation of the congregation as well uh, through that vote. But I wanted to share a prayer that I read this week. This is a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. I've been trying to read one or two a day at the start of my reading time uh, for several months now. I read one this week that I thought was very appropriate to this context. It's my prayer. As, as you invite me to step into a shepherding role, and it's my hope this will be your prayer for us as leaders, because I think it says something very powerful about how we should go about the task you've confided to us. This is a prayer, it's King James English, they're Puritans, hope that doesn't throw you. Here's what it says. Give me a draft of the eternal fountain that lieth in thy immutable, everlasting love and decree. Then shall my hand never weaken, my feet never stumble, my sword never rest, my shield never rust, my helmet never shatter, my breastplate never fall, as my strength rests in the power of thy might. That's the mindset in which I'm stepping into this role. I know that my brothers feel the same way, and I pray that that will be your prayer for us and for all of us as we walk with Jesus. Anthony, you can come up, and as he's coming up, there is one surprise for you, Mike. You know, there's, it's important to have symbols of remembrance. Look at the uh, time. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to go. <laughs> and so I've seen churches, when they appoint elders, give them like a huge uh, battle sword, like a claymore. You said that word earlier. I was like, that's way too intense. And so uh, we got two things for you. Number one is uh, it's German shepherds because you're a shepherd, and you're not alone. Um, not German. Yeah. 
but you like Luther. So, um, and then there's a sheep to remember that you are also a sheep among the flock. And they're Legos, so you remember not to take yourself too seriously. I want to so, know who made this? Uh, Elliot and Theo assembled them. Good they are, job. yeah, yeah. Good so. job. All right, well, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, it is to you that we look. You are our chief shepherd. You are the head of our church. And so, uh, God, we ask for your grace to uh, keep us on the path that you would have for us. Um, although it may be narrow and difficult and challenging at times, we pray for grace to, to continue to keep our feet upon it our, and our eyes on you as we, as we travel and traverse it. And Jesus, we thank you today for sending us a sweet and seasoned shepherd to your church here at Union. You could have sent us uh, a variety of, of um, people, but it's this person that you've provided us with. And for that, I thank you. And we thank you so much for that. And I pray uh, for Mike that you would continue to anoint him with your Holy Spirit, that he would um, be led, uh, guided, and driven by, by you, Jesus, by your spirit. And uh, God, that your grace would be pouring out over him as he, and he, as he steps into an official role of, of leading the, the flock here. And so, God, we are so grateful, and um, we pray uh, also for Murph this morning that she would have uh, patience with all of us and Mike as we continue to to lead. And uh, we we just love you. We're we're so overwhelmed, and 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 it's in a moment like this where we can feel something really sweet and sacred happening. And so, Lord, we quiet our hearts and calm ourselves, and we. We still ourselves in your presence. Please help us, God, to to be the church that you that you have um, that you started. In Jesus' name, Amen. Scott. Come read. <laughs> that was pretty slick, huh? Yeah. Got this nail. All right. Good morning. So Galatians three ten through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would open your word to our hearts, and you would open our hearts to your word, and that we would hear your voice. And thank you, Father, that we in this room are the Gentiles to which you've spoken the promise. And thank you that you give it to us because you love us more than we can imagine. Amen. Thanks, Scott. So if you want a title, the best I could come up with this morning is uh, Lay Your Deadly Doing Down. And you'll see why uh, at the end. 
So it's a cliffhanger. Spoiler alert, I don't know what it is. If you've been around me for any amount of time, you know that I have been for all of my life a church kid, right? Dale has seen it from in my mother's womb to today, all 37 years of it. And again, if you've been around me any amount of time, you know that uh, one of my favorite pastimes is railing on the church uh, that I grew up on. And, and I, I need to preface it with my, my primary emotion around church and life and growing up in it is gratitude. It, it really is, even though I don't show it that much, uh, it is gratitude before critique. Um, but I do love a good critique. And one of those critiques is around the songs that we sang. Um, there was uh, one, be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little eyes what you see, for the father up above is looking down in love, and you're like, uh, okay, careful little hands what you touch. My son earlier this morning during setup caught a lizard and he was, I was like, just wash your hands, please. The father up above is looking down in love. Be careful little hands what you touch. <laughs> there was the ever militaristic one, I'm too young to march in the infantry, ride with the cavalry, shoot the artillery, right? Pavlinas, you're raising your head. There's some old, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's a strange one too. <laughs> And I mentioned last week Father Abraham, who had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I'm one of them, and so are you, and so let's just praise the Lord. Now imagine my confusion after singing that song all my life and then getting gifted 23andMe, the genetic testing, and I get the results back and there's two surprises. Number one, I'm white. Uh, Number two, there's no Jewish ancestry in my blood, and I'm like, but I thought I was one of Father Abraham's sons. Ethan, turns out no Jewishness in our family at all. It's a strange song, one that you just kind of sing on rotation. And what's strange about it is that there's no explanation or understanding of how that happens or what that even means. Okay, end of rant and critique. And I say all of that because we get last week, this week, and in probably the next two weeks to come, Paul shows us how that happens. How people in 21st century America can say, and 1st century Galatia can say, we are sons and daughters of Abraham. How does that happen, and what does that mean? So maybe by the end of these next few weeks, we all can do a a community rewrite of the Father Abraham song and introduce that to the the kids' ministry. What do you think, Anthony? Is that a good idea? Sure. That's, no. (laughs) It's Paul is continuing this letter to a people that were tempted to add the law to the gospel and crushed this community that Christ had created, he unfolds further the story of Abraham and the plan of God in salvation and redemption. And what I want to continue to place before us is how foundational it is to understand that the Bible is one unfolding story. And in me saying that, I realize I'm a broken record. That's one of the high horses that I get on and hammer week after week after week. That the Bible is one continuing story that centers on Jesus showing his heart for the world. 
It's key because when we get that off, everything else begins to crumble from there. Uh, one of the biggest influences in my life, Mike Goheen, he was uh, my professor in seminary, he said, if we allow the Bible to become fragmented as just bits and pieces randomly, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture, and it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. Idolatry has twisted the dominant cultural story story of the secular Western world. If as believers we allow this story rather than the Bible to become the foundation of our thought and action, then our lives will manifest not the truths of scripture, but the lies of an idolatrous culture. Hence, the unity of scripture is no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshipers. And he drops the mic and steps out of the room. So in verses 10 through 14 that Scott read, we get a little bit more of how it's made behind the scenes. You remember that show when it first came out? Fascinating. How it's made. They show you the behind the scenes of the factory. That's what we get with Father Abraham and his many sons and daughters. This story of redemption in the formation of God's family in the first century into today. Continues the story of Abraham in faith and shows how reliance on the law is to live under the curse. You see that language in verse 10. For all who, and the operative word here is rely. Rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul here is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 27. And the origins of that word... Uh, curse, living under a curse, go all the way back to the garden. Again, we talk about the Bible being one story. We always talk about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then we'll get to Genesis 12 as well. But we see that word first appear in Genesis chapter 3. In response to the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God, there's this threefold curse that comes. First, God curses and addresses the serpent, that he's going to be crushed. We don't get any clue other than it's going to be from the offspring of the woman. How, when, why? Like, we, we don't get that other than the serpent, Satan, is cursed. You see, the ground is cursed. It's marked by toil and pain. The humans, and this is interesting, they aren't cursed themselves, but they are told they are going to live under and feel the effects of the curse in all of their lives. And as they exit the garden, and Genesis unfolds from chapter 3 to 11, what you see, if you read it as one continuous piece, is a continual downward spiral of humanity into deeper darkness, deeper sin, deeper tragedy. You see murder. You, you see conquering. You see all of this that ultimately culminates in Babel in Genesis 11, where God spreads out humanity. Then in chapter 12, there's a shift. We're introduced to the human who comes from the line of Eve where the crushing of the serpent and reversal of the curse will take place. And again, why do we always go back to Genesis 12? Genesis 12, 1 through 3 are, are kind of like that symbolic, uh, uh, is that even a word? Symbolic, symbolic, <laughs> symbolic, symbolic. Uh, key to the city, you know, that the mayor gives somebody and it's this, like this is, this gives you access to the rest of it. 
William Dunbrell, an Old Testament scholar, says these few verses, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, offer a theological blueprint for the redemptive history of the world. Where God calls Abram, says he's going to bless him, and through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. The project that began in the garden after the fall takes further shape in the family of Abraham. But if you've read the Bible, I mean, it is long and winding and at times confusing. You go, okay, Genesis 12 is here. And at least in my Bible, Matthew 1 is there. Like, <laughs> that's a long, winding story where God takes his time unfolding this plan and story of salvation and redemption. You see Moses, the law, there's kings, there's exiles and prophets. And the central theme throughout for God's people is faith in him. And to use the language of Galatians 3, it's reliance, trust, belief, dependency, in this God, Yahweh, through how they follow and live with him. They live under, and I say these words often, his word, his will, his way. By living under his word, they're following after what he says. They're relying on what he says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They follow not just what he says, but they follow his way. How God would be in the midst of the world, that's how God's people are to be. If you ever wonder what God is like, one of the verses that is most used throughout comes from the Exodus, where the Lord reveals himself as merciful and gracious, that he is slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. So to follow after what he says, they're to follow after how he is, and discern his way in the midst of the world. His word, his way, and his will. How do you discern the will of God? Well, it's a prayerful combination of leaning into his word, discerning his way, that then takes steps in real life. It's kind of, uh, if you are to look at the word of God and see the way of God in the world, then it's discerning the will of God is kind of like a golfer, you know, that, that plucks some grass and throws it up to see kind of where the wind is going. That's how I, at least today, understand the will of God in the world. You, you combine his word and you see how he's operated throughout history. And that's how we discover steps to take today. Abraham's story occupies 14 chapters in Genesis. And if you read it, you see a couple things that pop out. Number one, it's, it's really about the faithfulness of God despite the folly of the family. As you read the story, you go, yeah, Abraham, this is an amazing story. He's called out of nowhere to follow after God. and That's amazing, but you also go, this guy, like all of us, is an idiot. He's a fool. Uh, guys, try this one out. Well, don't. But if you read the story and you're like, God's taking longer than he wants, and so he's like, his wife comes to him, they're, you know, just spitballing ideas, and they're like, I know, take the bondservant and sleep with her and have a kid with her. That's how God's promise will come. Brilliant. No. Foolish. 
There's ramifications and repercussions of that. So the story really is about the faithfulness of God despite the folly of the family. And, and another thing that you notice that at the core of it is this relationship of faith, again, reliance on God. As Paul is writing through Galatians, he's showing the relationship between faith and justification, and he's quoting from Genesis 15, 6, where the background of that is Abram is at the time conversing with God in a vision, and God is saying to Abram this beautiful promise, Abraham, I am your shield. He's going to protect him. I am your exceedingly great reward. He's going to provide for him. And Abraham goes, yeah, God, that's, this is my interpretation. That's great. Uh, but I have no kids. I have no land. I have no blessing. Uh, you know, the, the closest uh, is Eleazar, like a nephew, distant family member. It, it kind of reminds me of Dumb and Dumber. I got no food. I got no job. Our pet's heads are falling off. <laughs> It's not unfolding as God had promised in the timeline that Abraham thought. And so what God tells Abram to do is go and number the stars and so shall it be. And then what happens is Abraham, Paul quotes, believes God and it is counted to him as righteousness. And all of this story comes before the law is given to Moses. And so Paul is showing that this whole story all along has not been primarily about following the law and being about the customs. And, and circumcision is not the key to unlock all of this. It is faith in God. This reliance in this relationship with God and the story is all summed up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 through 16, where the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations of this, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and, and dude, how brutal is this verse? As good as dead. That's a, a, a cruel way of saying he's old. 99 to be exact at the time. <laughs> as good as dead. We're born descendants as many of the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These, talking about Abram's family, all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so you see throughout this story for Abraham and all the way through, that it is about this deep trust in who God was, what God would do, and life flowed from that. Seeing the word of God, hearing the word of God, seeing the way of God in the word and discerning his will. What you see in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and every single character in the Bible, except for one, is that that is imperfect 
but it's also exemplary. Abraham, imperfect, but exemplary. David, imperfect, but exemplary. Until Jesus comes who is perfect and exemplary. And this life of faith isn't separating God's people out from real difficulty, real suffering, real loss, real pain, real hardship, real questions. But it roots them and grounds them in the midst of it. And that seems to be the soil for God's sweetest and most meaningful work. Where there aren't all the answers where there's a whole host of doubt and questions, frustrations, where God seems far off. That seems to be the soil for his sweetest and most meaningful work. And that, as Abraham looked forward, his family looked forward, that all culminates and centers in Jesus. As they looked forward and we get to look back on the story, we see that rescue still comes from reliance. As Christ comes. And what here Paul does is he shows us a bit, another uh, aspect and really some central aspects to the gospel of of what Christ came to do. He, He takes us from the curse and the law and this story of faith into Jesus where in verse 13 we see that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There's three things that have popped out to me over and over this week. That Christ redeems, he blesses, and he gives. And we have to almost every single week do this, is realize that we are very familiar with this. Oh yeah, there's redemption in Jesus and the cross is central. But, but think and try to put yourself in a first century uh, Greco-Roman world Gentile viewpoint and go, wait a second, this is wild. A savior is that guy, Jesus, who was from Nazareth that just got crucified by the Roman Empire. That, that guy is the savior of the world. That guy is the one that this whole story holds together in. Yeah. And he writes, says, the shocking fact of a crucified Messiah stands out. God's purpose was fulfilled, not in a smooth line moving inch by inch forward from Abraham through multiple developments into covenant renewal and Gentile inclusion, but in the previously unthinkable curse-bearing death of the Lord, the Lord's anointed. Galatians 3.13 joins up with Paul's other statements about Jesus' death. In this letter and elsewhere to form an overall picture in which the Powerful divine love goes to the darkest possible depths to enable the rescue operation to take place. And so we see these facets popping out in verse 13 through 14 that the gospel and the good news of Jesus is redemption, it is blessing, and it is a gift. You see, through the cross, redemption comes to a people that were enslaved. If you read the letters of Paul, you see he never strays far from Abraham and he never strays far from the Exodus. These Old Testament images are brought up again and again and again. Why the Exodus? Because it's the motif, it's the picture of how God's people are redeemed through the blood of a lamb. 
And so you see that in Passover, that the angel of death passes over those that are marked, the doorposts are marked by the blood of the lamb. That imagery is the same that is used for Jesus, who is the lamb of God, John the Baptist proclaims, who takes away the sins of the world. Graham Goldsworthy, an Anglican theologian from Australia, he says, Exodus is a graphic and unmistakable experience of redemption from an alien power. It involves not only the release from slavery, but also the shedding of blood as a means of escape from judgment. Now, often we shrink down salvation to just going to heaven when we die. It's kind of like a golden ticket to a better eternity. And it, there is truth to believing in Christ. He's the way, he's the truth of life. No one gets to the Father except through him. Yes, but, but there's so much more to this news than just that. Often when we shrink it down to only that, we lose out on all the implications for real daily life today. And Paul is talking more about that than the eternal life in heaven. He, he talks about eternal life in heaven, but especially here, he's talking about the implications of being released from the power of Satan's sin in death today and what that means for God's people as they go about their daily lives. Jesus reverses the curse by taking it upon himself and he imparts Blessing. So no longer are God's people living under the power of the curse, but they're living under the power of God's blessing. And that only happens through the cross. Thomas Akempis, he's a theologian from the 1400s, he says this, And the cross is salvation, and the cross is life, and the cross is protection against our enemies, and the cross is infusion of heavenly sweetness, and the cross is strength of mind, and the cross is joy in spirit, and the cross is excellence of virtue, and the cross is perfection of holiness. There is no salvation of soul nor hope of eternal life save in the cross. Paul's showing these churches that were tempted to do, yeah, the cross is good, but also follow the law. Also, follow all the rules. Also, adhere to these other things. As primary, he's showing these churches that the promise of Abraham is open to them through Jesus. Not law, not circumcision, but Jesus breaks the curse and replaces it with blessing and restored relationship. And so for God's people taking this avenue of faith and reliance on Christ rather than performance, Christ rather than rules, Christ rather than religion, that opens up this avenue of union and blessing with him. Verse 14, in Christ Jesus, that's where the name Union Church comes from, in Christ, being unified with Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Not through ritual, not through moral performance, but in him and only in Jesus. There's a book called Union with Christ written by Rankin Wilborn. He says, when I base my Christian life on my Christian experience, I become locked in the labyrinth of my own performance. I'm only as sure of God as my current emotions and obedience allow. My eyes are fixed on myself. 
The gospel, the good news, is the way the Holy Spirit turns our eyes away from ourselves and onto Christ. The gospel brings you into union with Christ. Christ enters your heart and gives you faith. And by that faith, you receive Christ and all his fullness. Faith fixes your eyes on Christ and rests in him. That is the blessing that comes through Christ. That's the blessing of Abraham for us today. Life with him and relationship. If we, as we've talked about uh, the last couple of weeks, that we find our home in him. When we get lost, he is the way back home. We are his people. He is our inheritance now and forever. And so through Christ, not only is there redemption, not only is there blessing, but then he closes out this little section with, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That the spirit of God is ushered in this new age and equipped God's people. It's the ultimate reversal of what happened in Genesis 11 in Babel. And I missed an opportunity to connect that dot last week. It was Pentecost Sunday on the church calendar. Um, We're on a high church, church calendar type church, but, you know, a week late. You know, it's a day late, dollar short. But where God scatters his people and causes confusion, it is the spirit of God we see in Pentecost that brings God's people together and unifies them, and gifts them, and sends them into the world as witnesses. And so, then this is going to be like, I don't know, a five to seven minute close. I want to leave you with some images, a short reflection, and a hymn. So three images. First, redemption. That all of us, apart from Christ, are enslaved. And the image is that those chains are broken through a bloody cross. That in the cross, the chains in, in, in slavery of sin is broken. In and only through the sacrifice of Jesus. There's another hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done. If you've heard it, you can look it up. I've yet to find a good iteration of it. But all of us are held under the presence and power of sin And until we trust in Jesus, we'll be perpetually there. And there's nothing that can break it out. There's no amount of strength or force. There's no amount of religion or performance that can break the curse of sin except for Jesus. And he boldly and happily does that simply through faith in him. The cross has the power to break the chains of slavery to sin. It redeems us. That image is is that he buys us out of slavery. So not only does he break those chains, but he buys us out and places us in his family. The second image around blessing is that not only are the chains broken, but now we're released from that prison that we're in into a new family, a new home, a new place that is safe and secure with him. We have a new family. We have a new inheritance. And so the chains are broken. We're let out of this cage into a home. And with the spirit, we see that that home is fully stocked with everything we need for life. I say this often. Not everything we want. You may open the cupboard and you're like, I want Captain Crunch. And you're like, why are there oatmeal squares here? And the Lord's like, that's what you need. 
It, it's not this promise of material prosperity, but it is a promise of presence, of strength, of, of really what the good life truly is at its core. That's what Christ gives us as he empowers us with his spirit. And, and I'm tacking on a fourth, playing a little jazz here. But that gift of chains broken, a new home that is fully equipped, it's one with the door open where you go out and you find your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your family, and you invite them in. That it's not just to kick our feet up and enjoy the recliner, though there is this deep and satisfying rest with the people of God. It is to bring others into that family. Those are the images. Here's the reflection. This week is I've been reflecting on the story of Abraham in, in this church in Galatia. What I see is this incredible gift that God gives us is that he takes our feeble faith, our imperfect faith, that is always freckled with doubts and fears and sin and shame and story and our past and our regrets. Like, nobody has this perfectly pure 24 whatever higher carrot faith that we give to God and we're like, man, I really polished that sucker up. We try to do that. But we take our imperfect faith and we give that to God. And you know what he does? He takes it. He accepts it, he purifies it, and he gifts it back to us better than we ever could have given it to him. He, Abraham believed God perfectly? No. And God says, I'll gift you back righteousness. I'll gift you back justification. I will gift you back holiness and purity, all of it. And we see in the gospel that God sees us through the lens of Jesus. So we come in and we go, God, I've really done messed up this time. Forgive me, please. I, I can't save myself. God saved me. And he goes, deal. He takes that imperfect faith, feeble, freckled, filled with warts faith, and he goes, perfect. Here's righteousness. Here's justification. Here's holiness. Here's community. Here's family. Here's power. He, he takes our feeble efforts, he seals it, he counts it, he calls it good, and gifts it back to us as belonging and hope and healing. He doesn't ask us to get it all together. He doesn't ask us for perfection. He just simply asks us to trust and so we take ourselves together, with our imperfection, our flaws, and all of that, and we just come to Jesus with that. And he loves it, and he accepts it, and he gives us back peace and blessing and power. Finally, a hymn. James Proctor from the 1800s. Lay your deadly doing down. See? told you. He says this, nothing, either great or small, nothing, sin or no, Jesus died and paid it all long, long ago. It is finished, yes, indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? 
when he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done, hearken to his cry. Weary working burden one, wherefore toil you so, cease your doing, all was done long, long ago. Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. It is finished, yes, indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? That, my friends, is how we become sons and daughters of Abraham. So let's just praise the Lord. Right hand. Let's pray. (laughs) Jesus, thank you for this good news. May it be seared ever deeper into our souls that we have redemption, we have blessing, we have power by your Spirit. For my friends in this room this morning, some that have not yet trusted in you, God, I pray that you would spark faith to see Jesus as beautiful, as compelling, as worthy. And for those that have trusted in Christ, may our our vision uh, be cleared from the cloudiness that we may see you a bit more fully this morning. Follow you maybe a bit more faithfully and And simply lay down the burdens that we carry, that we might live into your story more fully today. Thank you for this church, for what you have built in our building. May we accurately and compellingly portray this gospel through the Quad Cities. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.